Welcome to Intelligent Edge Yoga, yoga conversations for smart, compassionate practice with Catherine Ann Flynn. I'm Catherine. Hi, yogis. My son Harvey was born in June of 2017, and one of my teachers, Michael Stone, passed away a month later. And while we do not talk about Michael in this podcast, I think of him every day. And I think of his wife, Karina, and their boys. Michael worked diligently behind the scenes to be well. And I am sad that he did not feel that he could share with his community that he was not well. I do not pretend that I am an expert or that expert voices need to be the only ones having this conversation. But Kim McNeil from Calgary reached out to me and and said that she wanted to have this conversation. And so I thought, why not be bold and incomplete and struggling and earnest and do our best? because it's just the beginning of this conversation. If you stick around to the end of the podcast, I had reached out to my community and said, who has some thoughts they'd like to share? So the last 10 minutes of the podcast, you will hear colleagues I know, colleagues I don't know, sharing their thoughts on the mental health of yoga teachers. If Michael meant something to you or you would like to support his family, given the amount that he gave to the yoga community and the Buddhist community, you can either become a patron of his podcasts, but you can also purchase a print that is framed at the bottom of my stairwell. It says, do not squander your life. And it reminds me every day to live as well as I can and to be as well as I can be. 100% of the proceeds go back to Michael's family. You can find that on the website at www.intelligentedge.yoga. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How's how's your world over in Alberta? It's it's dark. The sun hasn't uh, hasn't come up yet, um, but otherwise it's it's nice. It's uh, quiet and peaceful. It's a good early morning. It's an auspicious time of day. Mm-hmm. It is. When I had well before I had Harvey, I had this vision that he would relatively quickly sleep through the night and would sleep till around 6.30. So I had this vision of myself waking up around 5, 5.30 to have my practices. Mm-hmm. And then he just never slept past 5 a.m. And it's, <laughs> it doesn't feel like an auspicious time when you, when you wake up to a screaming child. <laughs> he didn't get the memo. He didn't. You didn't, even though I sent it so many times. <laughs> Keep trying. You never know. <laughs> He's trying. He is. We're all just doing our best. 
Mm. You said a mouthful there. I think we can probably end the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And done. That's the shortest podcast we've ever recorded. So there's been quite a bit of interest in our conversation because I've figured out a way to do what I'm I'm hoping will be a sort of a call-in section of the podcast that I'll I'll do for some topics. And I, I put the call out to Facebook and said, you know, does anyone have thoughts about uh, the mental health of yoga teachers? Mm-hmm. And I had quite a few responses, and so some that are going to be shared uh, on this podcast when it goes up. But I also received one comment that was just in capitals, huh? And then multiple question marks. <laughs> so they were they were questioning the question or the the request for for feedback or comments. Questioning the question, which, which is, is evident. Well, obviously we're, we're going to circle back to this, but if you search for mental health of yoga teachers, you Mm -hmm. will not really find anything. Hmm. Is that because it's like the dirty little secret? Maybe (laughs) you're not supposed, those things aren't supposed to go together in terms of, um, in terms of a topic or subject, um, are we assuming then that everyone's mental health is is groovy? <laughs> yes, yes. Mm-hmm. That that uh, it's it's a prerequisite. <laughs> well, and the jig is up. I think <laughs> the jig is up. You reached out and said that you felt it was an important topic, and and you wanted to connect about it. So before we start to move in that direction, uh, tell me tell me a bit about you. Because we haven't, we've spoken a little bit, but we haven't spoken a lot. Mm-hmm. I started yoga, my practice, 20 years ago. Uh, and when I think about that number, <laughs> I wonder what happened to the past couple of decades. But, um, but it was, yeah, 1998. I remember it clearly because I was, I was still in Montreal. I'm from Montreal originally. And I was uh, working at a, a fitness tennis club. Sounds very glamorous, but it was really, you know, a very down-to-earth place, and um, and they had they had yoga there, and you know, for the life of me, I'm trying to remember why I even went. And frankly, I think it's because I was past my my career, so to speak, my athletic career. So I had left um, another decade almost of swimming, competitive swimming, synchronized swimming, and there was this massive gap that had been left by that. And I was kind of over the, um, you know, the grind of the competition and looking for something else. And, um, and yoga was there, it was offered. And as a, you know, as an employee, I could go to classes for free. And I managed to, um, you know, wiggle my way into no pun intended, but into uh, some of the yoga classes there. And there was a fantastic teacher, she was more Ashtanga based, but I, I loved it. And then fast forward four years where I moved to Calgary in uh, 2002 and I immediately was searching for a a studio to go to to call my own. And at the time, which sounds insane now, but I believe there was only maybe, you know, half a dozen really popular studios 
And so it was easy to pick. Um, and I did my research and I, I ended up going to uh, the yoga studio uh, here in Calgary. And as a student, really loved it, you know, kind of played the field, so to speak, and tried out a lot of different teachers. And then um, when I decided to go back to grad school, I realized that I needed something to help me pay the bills. And then I also realized that I, I loved, I loved yoga and they, you know, the studio was offering a teacher training program. So I applied and then the rest is history. I graduated from that program in 2005. So my first teacher training program, um, was, well, do the math 13 years ago that I graduated from that. It's, uh, it's a whole other conversation, but it's interesting that you turn to yoga to pay the bills. It's not a, it's not a statement you hear made often. <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't want it to sound like, uh, like that was the only reason. I mean, but it just made, it made sense because I could, I could go to school and I could teach and, uh, you know, at the time, and that's a whole other conversation as well, but, um, you know, you got paid fairly well for teaching in terms of an hourly, on an hourly basis, right? So I didn't have to take a job that required me to work, you know, full weekends, um, two full days, you know, or even more a week um, to make a decent amount of money. So it was, yeah, here's the word, right? It, it was all about balance and trying to be able to figure out you know, do something that I like to do as well. That wasn't, um, that wasn't a grind, uh, that I enjoyed to do. And that I didn't have to do in terms of like an insane number of hours a week. So it, it made, it made sense that way. It was, I started teaching when I was in grad school as well. And, and it felt like a reprieve from grad school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Completely different, right? A completely, completely different. different world. Mm-hmm. And yet so complimentary. There were actually, it's, I had a couple of peers who would say, I would never say anything. Like I'm, I've never been a person who would tell people and, and you should do yoga and you should do yoga. I've never been that person. And yet a number of people in my life, including a few grad student peers would say, I know, I know I should do yoga. <laughs> so... <laughs> Perhaps I was saying it in a passively aggressive way that I, I wasn't picking up on. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. In your defense, I think it's almost like confession, right? Where people come to you and they say, and I still get this. They say, well, oh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't been taking care of myself, Kim, or you know, I haven't been going to my class, or I should be going. They should themselves a lot. Um, you know, I'm inflexible. I should do yoga, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, my yeah. favorite is... Uh, I'm inflexible. I shouldn't do yoga. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always say that's like, um, you know, not going to a, a language class, like a French class, because you don't know the language. I don't know the language, so I can't go to a French class. Oh, I like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you did your yoga teacher training, was, was standing up in front of a room full of people unnatural for you? It, it was. The teaching part, um, and we did, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of demoing, right? As we were training on our peers, um, it that came naturally to me. And I think 
you know, a bit more of my background, right? There's the, the synchronized swimming piece, which is always, always about performing. And I had also been a lifeguard and a swimming instructor. So I had a lot of teaching experience already. And I had a lot of um, body awareness and then also a certain amount of knowledge of the body and how it should and shouldn't move. So that part of it was that came really naturally to me, which was part of the decision why I continued on with the teaching longer term. Um, the part that was really hard was the going to the classes with this group of strangers <laughs> um, and having to sit sit with that, right? So if I was an observer of other people, then that was great. And if I was teaching, that was great. But in terms of interacting with with the group otherwise, that was trickier. So the before yeah. and after classes? Uh, yes. Yeah. The small talk and the, you know, the trying to, to get to know these people, right. And to relate to them on some level. Um, we had a large group. We had, if memory serves, we had close to 20 people in my group, which to me sounds like a large group, but it may not be anymore. And, um, and you're all from a different, you know, you all have different perspectives and different worldviews and you come from different places and, uh, you're there for, you know, just as many reasons. So it was hard to kind of navigate that initially. And then of course, because the program lasted a decent amount of time, it was over a year and a half, right. Of the whole process, you got to know them and you got to, to know, you know, which people you drive with more and, uh, and yeah, it just, it fell into a bit more of a flow, but initially it was harder. There's a fairly, fairly well-known teacher that I've done some training with in some interesting circumstances as well. And this person has really cultivated a fun, fun loving persona. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time we had an interaction outside the studio thinking, Oh, you're, you're nerdy. <laughs> you're and this, they really struggled to make eye contact. And, uh, and it, anyway, it came across that this person was, uh, very deeply studied and very deeply introverted. And then that was my experience of them when I crossed paths with them again. And this time it was at a festival. And, and again, there on stage was this really uh, charming, but clearly cultivated personality. And then we spoke outside of that and it, and it was a very similar interaction. And I thought, oh, interesting. You've really got your, you've really got your cues and your language and your rhythm, uh, but it's so different from how you are one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. Did you find that? Did you find that surprising or did you find that even disingenuous as in, you know, not really knowing who the person was? <laughs> well, this, I was, I was quite young and very early at the beginning of my, my teaching practice. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I think like a lot of earnest young teachers was struggling with, uh, you know, owning a certain amount of authority to stand in front of a room and tell people what to do while not feeling fully confident in the teacher's seat. And, and 
on some level knowing that I didn't know a lot, but mm-hmm. wanting to share whatever it was I did know. So for me, the, the big persona was, uh, was captivating, but I, I mistakenly assumed that that was who that person was in a one-on-one situation as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the surprise to a lot of people, right? Where they assume, uh, and there's a great, great quote from Susan Cain's book, Quiet, about everyone shines given the right lighting. So, you know, it's, it makes perfect sense to me that you can go to the front of the class and teach, that you can be an actor, that you can be a yoga teacher and, uh, and guide people through, you know, this this class, right? And, and find that completely comfortable and be completely engaging and outgoing and quote unquote extroverted or seemingly extroverted. Um, but that's because you're in your element, right? And then there's the, it's the yin yang thing that there's a whole other side to you that then means, okay, well, I'm not like that all the time. You know, I think you would see that also with comedians, for example, you know, they're, they're larger than life on stage and in movies, um, but they can be quite, quite introverted outside of that. Um, yeah, it's a surprise, I think, to some people. I, I really do think that we, th- I agree that we think introverts are hiding in caves meditating somewhere because there's, <laughs> because if you're an introvert, we, we perhaps mistakenly assume you also have a fear of public speaking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you might. You might, but um, because that's such a natural fear, right, that a lot of us have. Um, but we somehow manage to get over that because the work is important to us and and it's what what fuels us, really. Do you identify as an introvert? Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. And it wasn't it wasn't until not to bring up her book again, but it wasn't until reading Quiet that I realized that, you know, it wasn't just a, a, a fluffy term that people threw around, um, that I legitimately was, and that I didn't have two heads, or I wasn't crazy, right? Or, um, you know, I had the right to be that way, because I think a lot of times you feel like you're an oddball, or you'd rather, you know, stay home. I remember when I was in my 20s even, and my friends would go out, and at the time, I think it's probably still this way, they would go out at 10.30 at night, 10.30, 11. And I would, you know, at 8 o'clock, I'd say, sure, yeah, I'm coming out. <laughs> I'll be right there, you know, meet you there at 10.30. And then by the time 10, 10.30 rolled around, I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm not going. <laughs> I'm so settled. And then, you know, I had this nickname, Houdini, because I uh, I would just never show up, which isn't exactly accurate because that implies more that I disappear after yeah. being there. But, but they they would call me that because I would never I would never make it out. But that's that's just where my energy went and my drive. It just wasn't a priority. I wanted to spend time with my friends, but not in the context that they were that they were creating. So, um, but yeah, I, it wasn't until reading that book that I realized, oh, there's lots of us, and that's okay, and I'm completely normal to want to spend hours alone. <laughs> Yes, totally normal to want to spend hours alone and yet also, you know, work with other people and have friendships and teach yoga. You know, it's not uh, it's not you're either all out there 
and hate to be alone or you're all inside and only ever want to be alone. Mm -hmm. It's not so simple. No, it's not. And in fact, you need, everyone needs um, connection, right? So if you didn't have that balance, it just all depends on how much of that you need. That's really, that's really the difference. I feel how much time you need with other people and how that happens. So what were some of the specific challenges of teaching yoga for someone who until recently, anyway, uh, suspected they were an introvert? Some of the challenges. Well, I think a lot of times getting back to the whole money piece, <laughs> uh, the dirty word money, when you're trying to perhaps make a living as a teacher, you're under this or you can be under this idea that you have to teach, you know, 20 plus classes a week. And, and that's a lot of, that's a lot of energy that takes a lot of energy. That's a lot of interaction. That's a lot of moving around town even because it's not like a standard job where you go to one place and you work nine to five, right? You're often teaching at several studios and having to juggle that sort of schedule. So as an introvert, I mean, you're, you would just be depleted immediately. So that's, that's the first thing, right? Just the way that it's, it can be set up so that it's not conducive to, to uh, an introvert's way of being, so to speak. I think there's probably a few people listening who are hoping that we are not confusing introversion with uh with mental illness uh, oh gosh no so this is introversion is is your personality that's that's a component of your experience so what drew you to want to talk about the mental health wellness of yoga teachers i think what happens or what can happen when you're trying to fit yourself into a box of what a yoga teacher should or shouldn't be, um, you can, you start to lose yourself, right? You start to act and work and do things in a way that are not, not conducive to your personality, not conducive to what you need in terms of your well-being. Um, and, and I think it can go even further than that, right? We always talk about authenticity as, um, you know, as a real, uh, um, as a, as a real benefit to being a teacher, right? The best teachers I feel are authentic. They're themselves. They have, like you said, their own language, their own style of teaching. They, um, they manage to get something out of their students because of that, right? Because they found their groove and they're not falling prey to being the, the teacher that they think everyone wants them to be or the teacher they think they should be even right down to the language. So I think when you try to fall into, or when you do fall into that trap of what you think a teacher should be, then your well-being suffers. And then that can cascade into a whole slew of mental health issues, right? So if you're an introvert trying to teach the 20, 30 classes or, or just do too much, right? Fill your schedule. Um, it's like a bucket, right? Your bucket is going to start filled and then it's going to be completely drained 
and there'll be nothing left, which is so ironic because we're teaching people to take care of themselves. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, you've mentioned that we, you know, we could spend some time talking about money and we could spend some time talking about teaching 20, 30 yoga classes. I feel that every conversation I have ultimately touches on so many relevant conversations. And this is the, this is the beauty of speaking with yogis is that they see the interconnectedness often. Uh, there are certain threads that maybe they haven't examined or been revealed yet, but generally they see the interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. And there's, I, I feel, and this is a conversation that I want to have in the near future, is that there needs to be a stronger identification and understanding of what it means to be a yogi other than being a yoga teacher. Oh, yes. <laughs> because yoga entered North America uh, and then popularized hugely during a, uh, you know, the, the groundswell of health and fitness of the 80s. It got absorbed in a very specific fitness industry way. And so all of us have benefited from yoga's exercise and have mm -hmm. made a career on that, or at least a, a money-making hobby. But people, people need to identify as yogis first. And I, <clears throat> I feel that if the teaching of yoga is preventing you from learning, uh, sorry, living what you know to be true, then that's a big problem. Even though people see teaching yoga as the solution, they see the nine to five job as the problem often. Mm-hmm. And that was a good Freudian slip that you made mm -hmm. um, about the, the learning and the living, because those two things are the same, I feel, right? If you're living your yoga, you're learning. You're always learning about yourself. That's that's why we do the that's why we do the thing. That's why we do the yoga. It's for it's to learn about ourselves and then from that learn how to be better humans. Um, with other humans, right? And in the world as a whole. So I think they go together, living and learning. One of the things I've learned is that our idea of what imbalance looks like is highly culturally prescriptive. Mm -hmm. In my impression is that in this culture that we're in, imbalance looks like carrying excess weight uh, and depression. Dominantly, those are the, that's where a lot of people's minds go, but we don't see necessarily, uh, you know, rampant materialism, being critical and judgmental, uh, being aggressive, burnt out, uh, addicted to work, addicted to coffee. Like we don't, we don't see these things as a form of imbalance and it shows up in the way we speak about people. You know, I think of uh, friends that I have whose husbands are not always the most polite or the kindest in interactions and and excuses are made. Oh, he's so busy at work. You know, oh, this happened and he's they've really put this on him. Uh, whereas if someone was, you know, clinically depressed rather than clinically aggressive, <laughs> it would be it would be a red flag. It would be a problem that needs fixing. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Well, because I think the aggression piece or that personality type, if you will, that expression is more accepted by our society, right? It's a, it's a, if I dare say, it's a masculine trait. Anger and frustration and aggression are all masculine traits and emotions, and somehow those are accepted. But the flip side, you know, the sadness, the the empathy, uh, the compassion piece, that's those are feminine traits and emotions tend to be, I know that's not true, um, but they tend to be. And then those are sort of, we're uncomfortable around that stuff, right? We're uncomfortable if you're sad and um, blue, I guess, if you will, right? We're uncomfortable with that. We can explain away the aggression and that's, that's okay. <laughs> that's how I see it. In the Ayurvedic lens, you know, aggression is, is fire, uh, fire that has spread, <laughs> fire that has not been worked to be contained because fire is the transformative element. And so a lot of great teachers have a lot of fire because they're able to transform content, ideas, the practice into uh, understandable, discernible teachings for students and they have a glow, right? So a lot of the people who have made it to whatever it means to make it as a yoga teacher, they often have a lot of fire. Mm-hmm. And that, that screams passion to me as well, right? Yes. Um, that there's, which is, which is a great thing to have passion for what you're, what you're sharing, what you're teaching. Have you ever had experiences of overly fiery yoga teachers? Yes. Uh, I hesitate because there are moments where certain teachers that I've had, um, moments where that comes up more so. And then it's almost as if they then consciously or unconsciously damper it, right? So there's a place for it. And I found, especially when I was initially learning, that that was, that was great because they're passionate. So that rubs off on you. Um, it becomes almost infectious, right? Uh, but it was never, never done or expressed in a way that I thought was, was damaging. Having said that, and I hope we don't, you don't get any comments about this one, but you know, coming from an Iyengar background, Iyengar yoga background, they are known not so much anymore, but I think, you know, the reputation still exists that they are known for that fiery, aggressive um, personality type. Uh, and I, <laughs> my impression of Iyengar teachers is that Iyengar is a good place for people who love rules. <laughs> well, yes. And if you break them, <laughs> you'll find out, you'll know about it. But, um, you know, I think that in a way leads you, leads you to really learn, uh, the material and really be cautious about what you, what you say, right, right down to the language. And, and so there's a good place for it and they are definitely fiery and passionate. Um, and yes, there's a whole rural piece to it too, but if we leave that part aside, right, they, they definitely are, um, you know, some people even say, 
it can be a little scary, right? Like, please don't come near me and correct me because I know that I'll be, <laughs> I'll be sore for the next week after <laughs> all the adjustments, so to speak. But, um, but there was a place for it, right? Because they have, at least in my experience, my teachers had a lot of passion for what they were doing. So positive. There was a, an experience that I had that I doubt I'll forget. I was in the UK doing a bit of teaching and visiting. And I had tea with a, with a peer who I'd only known in social media. So it was fun to, to meet and, and chat. And I was saying, you know, who, who do I need to practice with? Tell me where they are. I will go. And, and he said, oh, there's this one teacher you should probably go do a class with. Uh, lots of teachers practice with him, uh, but just be warned, most people have injuries from this person's adjustments. Oh, gosh. And I, and I was like, oh, and he was like, yeah, oh. people wear it kind of like a badge of honor. Like I've been oh. injured by, you know, I've survived. <laughs> <laughs> it's a t-shirt you should have a t-shirt <laughs> yeah, exactly. I survived yoga class with and and I said oh then there this person is popular and he said oh wildly popular and you know I was forewarned and I was still stunned I was stunned by what I experienced I just I just I'd like to think it wouldn't fly in my community, but maybe I've got blinders on, uh, or maybe I just haven't, haven't heard, but this person spent quite a bit of time criticizing other teachers and other methods mm. and had a super, super thick accent that I found difficult to understand and belittled me from across the room when I misinterpreted cues. And then ultimately came over to me and did start to adjust me and said, you know, I can't hear you breathing. I bet you've never breathed a day in your life. <laughs> if you practice with me, I'll teach you how to breathe. Huh. And I wrote a long email. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually was, was very calm. And, and one of the things I said was, you clearly have so much to offer and, and people see that maybe they, maybe you can just continue to offer it and allow it to shine for itself without publicly taking down other teachers and practices. Mm -hmm. How did it make you feel in the moment? I think because I'd been forewarned, I was somewhat more fascinated <laughs> than <laughs> horrified, but I was definitely also horrified. Uh, but I was, uh, there was a lot of, it was uh, extremely postural yoga. So, uh, you know, cues included handstand. <laughs> People mm. were just doing it. And so uh, there was a lot of effort on my part to, to execute the practice because it was advanced and postural versus what I would say is maybe challenging and physical, but accessible, like mm -hmm. hard and fancy don't have to go hand in hand. No, they don't. Uh, but really what it got me thinking about are, uh, it is specifically the term cult of personality. Mm. 
mm-hmm. that I think has been circulating around the yoga community, particularly around conversations of uh, of sexual abuses in the yoga community mm-hmm. and sexual harassment. And just mm-hmm. for for people who are listening who who are not sure what cult of personality is. It's a term that's typically used to describe uh, charismatic national leaders. So historically, that's been fascist. Uh, but that, and it's obviously being kicked around in our contemporary uh, con- political context as well. But the idea is that they form an intense emotional bond between followers and leaders. And so there's this this idea that they are you know one of the people but they are somehow also above the people and they are extraordinary and and yet and this is a little different than what the average yoga teacher is trying to do they are not necessarily likable right Mm -hmm. they often have an aggressiveness that is forgiven because it's seen to be as effective And I, when I started thinking about this, I saw so many parallels between this, this experience that I've shared is not my only experience of aggressive yoga teachers that I have been affronted by. Mm-hmm. And, and yet when I've had challenges in other situations, people were saying to me, well, what is that person bringing up for you? Is that person a mirror? Is, are they <laughs> revealing your work? Uh-huh. And it's not that I don't think that there's some validity to that line of inquiry. And, and of course, every experience reveals something. But it's not to say that every, every experience is worth it and that every teaching technique is justified. Mm-hmm. My feelings were that these people had had either stopped doing the work or were doing work that was not good enough. It was not rendering the right, uh, the right qualities anymore. And that the people close to them were defending them because of their dominance, because they were useful to them, because they were tied to them for financial gains. Mm. Mm. Drank the Kool-Aid. Drank mm-hmm. the Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. Well, I, oh, there's so much in that. <laughs> Which direction do you take that? But, the, you know, the question that they asked you about, oh, what did it bring up in you and what do you have to learn? I mean, of course, I would, my instincts would say it's teaching you how not to teach. <laughs> so when you, you know, I don't, I don't believe in the, the mirror argument in this case, um, but I do feel like it's a good a good opportunity to see someone teaching in a way that you don't want to emulate, right? We have people that we want to be just like them, right? They're, they inspire us and we want to, you know, take a little bit of what they offer and be able to offer that ourselves. Right. But, um, when it comes to belittling and shaming and, uh, and treating your students like, like lesser people, (laughs) And that's, I mean, that's what you take away from it, right? You take away that you never want to treat a student like that, especially, you know, consciously. You can't control how people perceive your 
you're teaching all the time. But anyway, so I otherwise think that that's, you know, the whole mirror thing is, it has some validity, but I don't know if it has any validity in this particular situation. I think it can be particularly damaging because yoga attracts seekers. Mm-hmm. And often people who are seeking, whether it's a spiritual path or a path out of pain, they see what they perceive to be strength and and they attach to it and then they can be really let down mhm mhm well and there becomes this power dynamic as well right where instead of building a community and teaching right if you if you pair it take it right back down to its, you know, its pieces, right? We're teaching, we are teachers. There's a teacher student relationship. Um, you know, when we were little kids in grade school, we had teachers that we loved and teachers that we, we hated. Right. And, and there was a certain reason, there are reasons why we love certain teachers, what they, what they offered us, what they, you know, again, their enthusiasm for the subject matter, that kind of thing. Right. And we just looked up to them so much. So that's a healthy, that's a healthy relationship. But when you're, you know, when you're, you're not teaching anymore, when you're shaming, you know, you're not teaching anymore when, um, as you said, you know, people come to you for certain reasons and guidance and even just a place to chill out. Right. And mm-hmm. then they don't, they don't get that. They, uh, they get the opposite of that. And then, yeah. And then you're supposed to figure out it's your fault, right? It's your fault that you don't come out relaxed and, and uh grounded and you know there's way too much responsibility sometimes on the on the student Mm. that's oh that's another conversation too (laughs) for another time Mm -hmm. but there's certainly a lot of resources out there these days for students with mental illness Uh, if you if you search for programs, for trainings, for classes, it certainly gives you the impression that that yoga teachers are mentally very well and their mm-hmm. students are not. But I've had one I had one teacher who looked out at a large room full of people and said, "You're all a bit broken." Oh <laughs> my! Yes, it was provocative. <laughs> And, and and went on to say that no one pursues yoga because everything is well, you know, whether it is the mind or your knee. Another uh, teacher I know has said that yoga is flypaper for crazies. <laughs> I, I did read that in your notes. I thought that was I thought that was hilarious. I like to think of it as we create an atmosphere where people have permission to explore their felt experience. Mm-hmm. where we don't uh, insist that they behave in a way that they feel pressure to behave, you know, outside, outside the studio mm-hmm. uh, to let it all hang loose, I suppose, within, within a certain amount of boundaries. Mm-hmm. But I thought it might be helpful to, to define mental health. I love the world health organization's, definition of health. So their overarching definition of health is that health is a state of complete 
physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. So it looks at a holistic perspective of health, but they go on to specifically define mental health as a state of well-being in which every individual realizes his or her own potential, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and is able to make a contribution to her or his community. Mm-hmm. Well, in that last part, especially the ability to make a contribution, uh, that's what I think any good yoga teacher, self-aware to a certain point yoga teacher hopes to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is to contribute and give back. And, you know, I getting back to one of your previous points or comments, I, um, I had coffee with a then someone I didn't know very well, but now we've become fast friends and we were having this conversation and he knew I was a teacher and was asking me about, you know, things about stress management, et cetera. And I admitted that, that I, I understood completely that I was dealing with all the same things. And he, he was shocked, right? Because he thought, well, you're a yoga teacher, you haven't figured all out, um, or all figured out, excuse me. And, uh, and that was my first, you know, my first sort of introduction to this idea that people think, you know, on some level they hold you to a different standard or they make assumptions about how you're doing. I'm like, we're just humans, right? We're just people. We deal with all the same, all the same stuff. The only thing that's really different is that we've seeked out teachings and trainings on this particular topic because, you know, it interests us at the very least some of us go into it because we you know we want to learn more about yoga yoga philosophy etc with no intention of teaching at all right and other people beeline straight for the you know the the class schedule they get themselves on there and they start teaching right away um but people come into it for a lot of different reasons but yeah as teachers i think we all hope to make a contribution and we all hope to to also get something back. And I think that's sometimes where we, where we fall flat, right? Is we, we give back, we give back, we give back. And sometimes we don't, we don't get it ourselves or we deplete ourselves in the process or, you know, we think we don't have the right to, to take a break or, or yeah, be the student. (laughs) Um, And that's where the whole mental health piece can go well, can come into it, right? There's quite a bit of conversation. I love that this phrase is starting to take off in the yoga and Ayurveda community, but the idea that our, our body mind is a container for the spirit and that the body mind needs to be resilient as a container to hold the practice. Mm-hmm. And some practices are destabilizing so there are certain energetic practices like you know 20 minutes of bastrika that <laughs> are too destabilizing for a leaky cracked container you have to build the resiliency of the container before it can hold that practice mm-hmm. and so we can we can see teaching even in the early stages you know even if you're barb in it who teaches 
yoga once a week in the break room as potentially destabilizing. You know, if you're not, if you're not practicing, why are you working so hard to facilitate practice for other people? Hmm. Hmm. Right. But also not to take ourselves too seriously. Mm. And the pra- you know, the practice can can mean so many different things, right? It doesn't necessarily need to be on the mat. Um, but I love the word destabilize because in your example of the once a week lunchtime yoga class in the office, right? It can certainly be destabilizing. And that, you know, on several fronts <laughs> from balance alone, but also, you know, people people shy away from it because they don't really want to learn what maybe they already know, which is, you know, I perhaps lack strength or I don't move well, or, you know, I really have been sitting on my desk at my desk for way too long and haven't done enough to counter counteract that. Um, but yeah, it's completely destabilizing. You come into a class and, and that's sort of what you want in a way, in a positive way is to get people out of their comfort zone and realize, Oh yeah, that warrior that seems so easy in the photo is really quite challenging on, you know, several levels, physical and mental, sometimes emotional. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we want to destabilize. Um, but also, as you said, sort of the progression of teaching certain techniques, if you will. Um, I mean, that's the beauty of a good teacher, right? Is only teaching what you know, only teaching what you've practiced and understand. And also know that there's a hierarchy, right, of, of things. We start with the poses for a reason. They're just more accessible to people. We don't dive into, necessarily, right, dive into the meditation piece right away. Yeah. Well, we can't. Every, mm-hmm. No, and everyone has a physical experience of life. And so everyone can, can have a physical practice and then have an easier physical experience. Mm-hmm. But taking things too seriously is one of my favorite hobbies. And <laughs> specifically when it comes to language, I'm uncomfortable with destabilizing as a goal of practice. Because to me, an, an unstable, like an, an unstable table, I mean, I appreciate that we do things like that all the time in table and we pick up a knee and then it's not a steady table anymore. Mm-hmm. But, but you would see an unsteady table as something that needs to be fixed. Now, I appreciate that this is a tricky thing I'm wading into in the context of mental health. Mm-hmm. However, mm-hmm. My, my idea, my experience is that you come to yoga with this clear idea of how you perceive the world or actually you don't see how you perceive the world. You have unquestioned perception. This is how things are. And so in many ways it's shifts that happen in yoga practice. Oh, I'm just here for my knee, but then your perspective widens or it, you loosen it a little bit. So it's not necessarily that it's destabilized. It's just a, it's just a shift. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's the beauty of it, right? You, you go to yoga class, maybe to, to lengthen your hamstrings, but really what you end up with is um, a better understanding of self, um, an opportunity to 
spend time with yourself to quiet down, to not think <laughs> or have to think of all these responsibilities that you have and scheduling, et cetera, et cetera, right? You're giving yourself an opportunity to, to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that mental, like resilient mental health is a prerequisite to teaching yoga? Oh gosh, no. Speaking of unsteady tables. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think the best teachers are also can be not always <laughs> should be careful what I say. Um, but the best teachers have also gone through their own, their own shit, excuse the expression, right? They've, you know, in order to understand someone's back pain, it can really help to have gone through your own sort of experience with, with back pain. Yep. People um, who usually teach yoga for fibromyalgia have had fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And not to say they, they have to, right. No. Um, you know, yoga for cancer is a, is a good example, but there's just a different relatability and a different understanding. Um, so in terms of the whole mental health piece, uh, you know, I like to think we're all crazy in our own way. <laughs> I use that word affectionately. Um, but in order to really understand stress and perhaps poor stress management, if we want to start there, you know, you have to be a real person in the real world, right, to get it. And um, and if you take that, if you take that beyond that, right, into depression, anxiety, etc., um, you you become more. I don't want to say relatable, but you can relate and have compassion for your students and be able to teach in a way that perhaps someone who hasn't experienced those things can, um, can express right and teach. So no, I don't think it's a prerequisite. Um, I think what needs to happen though is, is that there needs to be an understanding that yoga doesn't fix, uh, mental health issues per se, right? We offer tools. Yoga is a set of tools to add to your toolbox to help with, with those conditions. Um, that's how I see it. I completely agree. People, uh, that I'm close with, uh, or students that I have spoken with on their mental wellness have said that, that they have success in their treatment if yoga is yoga and or meditation is one part of a multi-pronged approach which includes therapy and medication mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. that's what they need mm -hmm. yeah and everyone's different right in terms of what they need and you you know you brought up the term judgment a while back um so it's our job not to judge whichever path or not even path whatever people choose route they choose for their treatment um everyone's different right and it's like the soup of all these ingredients if i want to use another analogy um yeah, and it's whatever works for the for the person, but we we shouldn't judge what they choose to do or or not do, right? If you choose medication, it's not even really a choice. <laughs> people need it. Um, I, I say choice, but it's not really a choice for a lot of people. But if they go that route, right, there shouldn't be this judgment. Well, 
you should have just meditated more. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> and by, <laughs> and by but no one would say that if someone broke their arm, you're going to meditate no, that away. No, never. <laughs> no, never. And, um, it really, uh, it's one of those sticking points for me recently where I just, Oh gosh, I can't stand reading these things that imply that, Oh, if you, and, and granted meditation is backed by science, right? There's research to back it now in terms of how it can help, um, mood boost mood. But, um, but I really, I, it really gets to me when I read things that imply that you can, you know, meditate your way out of, out of your mental health issues. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, especially it, if the, if whatever it is, uh, including the depression or anxiety, you know, if, if you're so in it that you can't sit to meditate, meditation is not a good component at that time. In a lot of conversations that I've had, uh, people have said that that medication has brought them to a place where they can practice, where practice becomes possible. And I've had students, friends and family members try to come off medication. And some have found that the medication was good for a period of time and then got them to a place where they were resilient enough and had the practices in place that they could. And others who have, have grown to accept that, that that is not possible. And medication is a critical ongoing component of their practice and their wellness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. I, I, I truly believe that it's, um, you know, a practice is a very personal thing and, treatment for what you're going through is a personal thing and you need to surround yourself with with professionals mm-hmm. uh, that that know right um that know how to help you several professionals sometimes <laughs> yes a team <laughs> yes <laughs> i think we all need a board of directors <laughs> i would love my own board of directors i have a cat and she's kind of useless but, um, <laughs> Yeah, a cat board of directors doesn't get anything done. No, I mean, she thinks she rules the world, but yeah, that's not really what I'm looking for. <laughs> I might have mentioned this on a on another podcast, but uh, in North American Buddhist communities, teachers do have boards of directors, and and they were implemented... Uh, essentially to help encourage the teacher toward right conduct because they recognize that absence of some guidance or uh, regulation, uh, the position of teacher uh, created a power dynamic, created a false impression in that person that, that led to ethical boundaries being crossed, including mm. relationships with students uh, uh, sexual relationships with students. And I think it's one of the major challenges that we face in the yoga community is that we, it's an individual practice, right? Mm -hmm. So it's an individual practice and that is what characterizes it. And we still haven't fully figured out what is a yoga community, you know, or is that the people who hold memberships to studios are it, does it consist of the people who teach yoga within that city? Do they have to be friends? Like we're still working out all of those pieces and politeness, 
financial gain. There's lots of reasons that people don't speak out when they see uh, some toxic behavior coming from teachers. And just to go back to what I was saying about the cult of personality uh, components of some teachers, those teachers confuse themselves as as the practice. They conflate themselves with the practice and that they are the only conduit. You know, like that teacher said to me, you practice with me and I will teach you to breathe. What like what an incredible statement. And mm -hmm. but it happens from students' perspectives too. They conflate a teacher with the practice. And mm -hmm. so can be let down when that teacher is just human. Yeah. Right. Just human. Right. And or let down or um, sounds a little melodramatic, but almost fall apart if yes. they lose that teacher. Right. If a teacher moves or stops teaching their regular class that they've been going to for for years. Right. There can be even this bitterness and resentment towards the teacher, which, you know, almost makes it sound like a like a therapist patient relationship at that point, counselor, um, patient relationship. But yeah, I've, I've heard of that happening. And frankly, I've had it happen to me as well, right? Where students are devastated that you're, what do you mean you're not teaching my Sunday morning class anymore? You've been doing it forever. Like, what am I going to do <laughs> without you kind of thing, right? And I don't see that as anything special about me. But, um, you know, they had this safety net, this warm blanket in this place to go to and then all of a sudden that's being taken away from them yeah yes i've had i've had tears over departing students i've had students with tears over my departure mm -hmm. and it reminds me i mean there's there's very reasonable tears because of recognition of a of a change and a farewell it's very reasonable to to miss a teacher and to miss someone. Uh, but there's a, a chiropractor I work with who says that any physical therapist who isn't trying to never see you again mm -hmm. isn't doing their job. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the yoga communities that are springing up are answering a very real need that we have for co-regulation for community it's an imperfect model at the moment but we're working on it you know community is a very real need at the same time we are trying to help people develop their own skills for being okay whether we specifically are at the front of the room or not and so that has to go in the opposite direction as well. You know, you can't see your classes uh, as reason that you are worthy, reason that you are that you have something of value to offer. It it can be it can become too much of a support. You need to be steady in yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, sure. And your teaching can be a, a place of, um, or it can offer you, you know, confidence and be part of that, you know, building your self-esteem, for example. Um, but it can't be, 
the end all be all, right? You, if you identify so much as a yoga teacher, um, and then you suddenly start to see yourself as something that's outside that box of being a yoga teacher, then that could be quite, quite painful. And the idea of, you know, community too, and bringing back the idea of introversion, right? That, that sometimes you end up outside of a community or, um, you know, you feel like you can't be yourself within a community. And so then you're a lone wolf and that's tricky too, even as an introvert, right? Because you need, you need that group of people to be able to share, to be able to learn from, bounce ideas off of. Um, and as you said, you know, potentially keep you in check as well, right? Um, I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. and, and perhaps, you know, we're leading down a whole other conversation too about competitiveness and not wanting to share and <laughs> that kind of thing. Oh, that is a whole other, that is a whole uh -huh. other conversation. Uh-huh. And well, and something that is is worth sharing and it's it, i'll admit it is hard to share because it is it's difficult to build a career on teaching yoga and ever admit that you did something wrong that you made a lapse in judgment or uh, or you have been criticized you know i've thought about asking yoga teachers that i want i'd like to do an episode on feedback and integrating mm -hmm. feedback and what's valuable feedback and what's unfair feedback. And I was wondering if I could even get yoga teachers to talk about what has been their difficult feedback. Because you'll, you know, unless someone really takes you to task in a Google review, it's not often easy to find I and mean, it's often impossible to find. And people are frightened to share uh, their experiences of it because there's so much pressure to present uh, an all-knowing, wise, kind, ever, ever satisfying uh, teacher experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, yes, that screams perfectionism, which fits so nicely with the mental health discussion that we're having because that's a whole... That's a whole um, symptom, right, of depression is perfectionism and being really hard on yourself. And and I think what you just described is not wanting to share your one or two star reviews, right, um, is part of that. God forbid you should ever show your your students that you're or even potential students that you're fallible, right, mm -hmm. that you're um, anything other than this pretty glossy yoga teacher that smiles all the time and never swears and <laughs> has their act together. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we certainly do. I don't, I don't want anyone to think that I'm saying that we don't get better with time. Of course you become a more, if you let in a certain amount of feedback and you're open to growth and change, you become a more skillful facilitator. But but as my dad would say, quoting the Muppets, <laughs> peoples is peoples. <laughs> yes. And peoples keep being peoples all along the way of your teaching journey. And so, you know, if you're, if you're, if you think that continuing to teach and reaching higher and higher heights of teaching, however you define that means that you uh, 
uh, will, will attain perfection and that you will never receive difficult people or difficult feedback or difficult experiences. That is a, that is a false goal. Mm-hmm. You just become more skillful at, at coping with them, I think. Well, it occurred to me now, just now, listening to you, that, um, you know, aside from perhaps uh, our formal teacher training programs that we take, there isn't a lot of opportunity for feedback. Like you said, people don't offer it up a lot. We don't always ask for it. We're afraid to ask for it. Um, but I think, you know, we get into this cycle perhaps as teachers of going to trainings and workshops where, you know, we learn and we observe and we're exposed to different things, but that's not feedback for us. Right. So we don't get, we don't get a lot of feedback unless we have, a you know, really gutsy, confident student that's, you know, comfortable telling you, um, like you did, right. Writing, writing the email. And I've received one of those emails in my entire career and I will never forget it. Right. But, um, unless we have that, we don't, we don't get a lot of feedback. Right. Um, it's just not something that, or criticism, you know, there's the, the big C word, right. Criticism. We don't, we don't get that, which is a shame. Yes. I mean, most of the time, if someone's not picking up what you're putting down, they just don't come back. Yeah. That's your criticism. They never come back, (laughs) 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 which is fine because there are, you know, everyone has their, their place and they're, you know, they're, they're not meant for every student and every teacher is not meant for one another. So that's, that's cool. But yeah, you never really know what went wrong. <laughs> it's like the, the ghosting in a relationship, you know, the person just disappears. You have no idea what went wrong. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, and then you lean back into, uh, common sayings like it wasn't meant to be. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and of course that gets easier to accept the more confident you are in the teacher's seat, the more certain you are that you do have a community and the opportunity to teach, the easier it is to add that Oscar Wilde quotation to your email signature, just be yourself, everyone else is taken. Until you cultivate that confidence, you might try on everyone else to see if that person's more popular and gets more teaching opportunities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, comparison. No, I mean, you, you stop being a good teacher when you think you have nothing to learn and nothing to, to gain, right, from, from your students um, and from your own practice, really. So those are, those are the types of teachers that you should run from. Those are the real ones, I think, with the, you know, the ones to avoid, the ones with personality disorders that are just really, um, yeah, all about them about themselves. Yes. No. Yeah. The people who, who feel like they need a small country to rule. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So everyone breathes the same in that country. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> Defer to my wisdom. Yes. Uh, I was looking up, uh, I was doing a little bit of work in preparation for, uh, my next round of teacher training. And I was looking at Georg Feuerstein's guide of ethical conduct for yoga teachers from mm-hmm. his book, yoga morality. Mm-hmm. And there were two that I plucked out that I thought were interesting in the context of this conversation. 
because I find uh, a lot of the, again, it's always guides of ethical conduct for yoga teachers. Even Georg, you know, doesn't, he doesn't also create a guide of ethical conduct for yogis. I, yeah. And I think that's a big mistake that we're making. I, I, to bring it back to what I said at the beginning, I think we, we need to have a clear understanding of what it means to be a yogi. You know, shouldn't you strongly identify as a yogi before you become a yoga teacher? Maybe not. That could be me taking things too seriously and I should just let Barb in IT teach her yoga class. But <laughs> this is, this is, these are from uh, Georg's Guide of Ethical Conduct for Yoga Teachers. Yoga teachers are committed to maintaining impeccable standards of professional competence and integrity. Yoga teachers acknowledge the importance of the proper context for teaching and agree to avoid teaching in a casual manner which includes observing proper decorum inside and outside of the classroom. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I like those. Yeah. I really, uh, I like both of those. I think that, well, I have two paradoxical thoughts. I'm always of the opinion that if you only teach what you know, you're going to stay in a safe zone, so to speak. And, and be able to keep your integrity. Having said that, I also feel that we pump out way too many yoga teachers as well. And so the, the quality, if you will, is diluted. Um, and that's, you know, it's a general statement. There are a lot of wonderful yoga teachers out there and everyone starts somewhere. But I do feel like getting back to the business piece of it, right? There's a, it's a business, right? And they're pumping out teachers. And, and as you said, right, to these people, are they ready, right? Are these teachers ready to teach other people? Or are they still doing their own work, right? They still have a lot of their own studying and learning to do before they can be sent out into the world. So those are two paradoxical thoughts, but I, I think they they work well with the, what you just described, what you just read. My experience of teaching through difficult times came up recently. A student said to me that she did a workshop with me when I was going through a separation. And she said, you're such a good little actress. I had no idea. <laughs> And it wasn't until later, obviously, that uh, that it came to light. And that's not to say that I didn't have classes where it it was probably obvious that I was going through something difficult. But I said, I don't know that I don't know that I'm an excellent actress. I do feel that by that point, I'd been teaching for several years. And I knew that this too shall pass because everything passes, right? Uh, uh, coming into existence, existing and dissolving, that cycle is a pillar of yoga philosophy and spirituality. And so I knew that it was not forever. And so I leaned into the skills that I'd cultivated over the years and didn't too strongly deviate from 
what I had been doing, right? Times of big disruption, big sorrow, big illness. These are not necessarily the times to try something new and fun (laughs) in in our classes, right? Because... Uh, you don't want to take that unstable table and shake it even more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that would be if, if you are someone who is struggling with a, a, with mental ill health that's either uh, specific and contextual or chronic, that would be a piece of concrete advice that I would have is, is do during difficult times uh, go with what you know works. It's not the time to need to entertain people. It's okay. Brown rice yoga works. <laughs> well, and I would add that um, you had said that you'd been teaching for several years. And I think if I, if I try to compare it to, say, another, uh, another industry or another uh, profession, I think we would probably call what you did compartmentalizing right that you were you had been doing it for enough years that you were uh, quote-unquote had reached a certain expert status or um, you were confident in your teaching you had been doing it for enough times or for enough years that you were able to to teach right it comes naturally to you even though you're going through this personal hell right you were able to compartmentalize so in another profession that would you know, and gosh, men do it all the time, not to bring up the gender difference again. But I think, you know, no one would ever say to a, a man, oh, well, you're a great actor. I mean, maybe they would, mm. but they would just assume he's getting the work done. He's going to work. He's doing his thing, you know, and then he's coming home and dealing with his with his life. Right. That's falling apart around him. Um, but, yeah, for some reason, that's what struck me as I was listening to you. Right. That. Oh, you're this, you're a great actress, right? Uh, and I agree that you should always go back to your roots and go back to what is comfortable and, and not necessarily easiest for you, but like you said, just go back to the, the brown rice. Um, I, I remember when, when my mother died and I had two very different experiences. One class that I had been teaching at the time, I had to just walk away from it. And, you know, to be honest, I never went back to it. I, I just had to walk away. And, um, and then another experience was a, was a retreat that I was hosting. And I, I almost, you know, I almost thought of canceling, but I didn't. And, um, this was really, really close to when my mother had passed away, like within two months. And mm. I thought, I thought it showed, right. I thought I was oozing everything, right. All this, um, not negativity, but sadness and grief and yes. loss and depression and all this. I just thought I was oozing it. And I even, I remember apologized at the end of the, <laughs> at the end of the retreat in such a way that I said, you know, I, um, you know, I was honest in a little way, right. To, to tell them what was going on, not in a, a grand way. And I remember apologizing saying, I'm sorry if I wasn't at, you know, hundred percent of my best or whatever. And people were like, what are you talking about? We had no, we had no idea. Like, thanks for, you know, thanks for sharing. <laughs> but, and so here I was thinking that I, I was an open book. Um, and they had no idea. Yeah. yeah. And, and good on you for, for providing a context and an experience for them to do their practice, even though that was going on for you. Mm-hmm. I think 
one of the things that is so unappealing to hear, but is also a truth is that if you make yoga your income, when things get hard, there's pressure to not teach during difficult times. And there is financial pressure to keep teaching. Mm -hmm. Very few yoga teachers live with sufficient financial margins to allow themselves to step back. Usually they get forced to step back because illness so decimates them that no one wants them there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. It's financially very difficult to say that you will take some time off for grief or mental illness. There are no, that I'm aware of, there are no relief funds. There's no insurance. Oh, gosh. No. Yeah. You would need to have your own critical illness or something, additional insurance that you pay on your own. And, you know, even just working with the, the more regular day-to-day -day things, right? Um, compartmentalizing sometimes because really quite hard and and but you still have to go and teach right and you have to show up for your students and that can be really hard you especially as an introvert right if you're just not you just don't have the energy or you don't have the the drive so you go into autopilot which you know i'm so glad that you brought that up because i think it's it um it plays a huge part in in a yoga teacher's uh i don't know career Right? How they get through the days. Yeah. And and your autopilot probably can provide a very good class. I'm always amused by the seemingly disparate experiences that we have, right? We all we all have a relationship to yoga. We all have a relationship with our own practices. And I've taught classes that I thought were terrible. Or at least mm -hmm. I found them very difficult. That's really the better phrase. I found them difficult to deliver. And people have come out and said, what a great experience. Similarly, I've had classes where I think, I think we've solved it, everyone. I think, <laughs> I think we all have experienced capital T truth today. And people come out and they're like, thanks, bye. <laughs> right. But wait, yeah. <laughs> Wasn't that as good for you? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, and I think that comes from experience, right? As well, that um, that you can be, you know, a basket case inside, <laughs> but um, still be able to to give your students what they came for, which was a great class. Yeah. <laughs> We've been chatting about this for a while and I feel like we could go on forever, but is there anything, is there anything that we missed? We missed tons and there's so many perspectives and voices and that's why I wanted to add uh, the call in section to the show. But is there anything that you'd like to add before, before we say goodbye? I would say that to teachers, budding teachers and, uh, and current teachers that you know, your Oscar Wilde quote was perfect, that you have to be yourself, right? And do your best. And if you have to stay off social media, <laughs> stay off social media. Um, but do your best to forget about the the yoga, the, what a yoga teacher should be, right? What society is trying to tell you a yoga teacher should be. Mm. Um, what it's trying to, any other teachers perhaps too are, 
trying to tell you that you need to do to be a quote unquote yoga teacher. Um, I think that can be very, very damaging. You need to be able to find your own way. And some people are great at that right off the bat. Right. And others are, are not, um, because they, yeah, they just want to do right by, by others. Um, but I would say, yeah, carve your own path and then practice what you preach. And that is to really take care of yourself and, and do what you need to do to take care of yourself. And, you know, if people want to judge that, I mean, it's really no one's business anyways. Um, but if people want to judge that, I think that comes from a, a misunderstanding of, uh, of what it means to really, you know, go through a treatment plan if it is for mental health or, or what it means to, to be an advocate for self-care or, um, or however you want to label that, right? But yeah. those would be the two things that I would, that I would tell teachers and people in general, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I feel that the more calmly we can talk almost ca- casually, like the more we can integrate true statements about our experience and other people's experiences, the less we stigmatize them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the core of it, we are people that are teaching other people about something that we know more about than they do, hopefully. Right. Um, or we, yeah, I mean, at the core of it, right. And we take ourselves again, so seriously sometimes. And yes, we should, because a teacher has a certain responsibility, even an English teacher, or whoever. Right. Um, but the only difference with yoga teachers is that we've managed to help build a, you know, billion dollar industry of, of like yoga wear <laughs> and all these other kind of funky things. But I, you know, just go back to the core of it. What are you doing? You are teaching, right? You want to be able to share what you know. So, and when that becomes not so fun, then, then move on or take a break or, yeah. Yeah. Just remember that it's not, uh, it's not rocket science. <laughs> I'm going to link your website off the show notes so everyone can click and find you. But if people would like to spend more time with you, where can they find you? Well, as much as I just dissed social media, I'm on social media uh, at Kim McNeil Yoga. So it's always the same handle across the board, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And are you doing any upcoming workshops or trainings? I do a workshop every year in Calgary that's on yoga for arthritis. It's one of my, um, one of my passions, passion projects that I do. And then I'll be at the Toronto yoga conference. I believe it's at the end of March this year. They've bumped it forward, but yeah, I'm there regularly. So that's a great place to, to come and meet me. Amazing. Thank you so much for, for starting this conversation. It's, It's a difficult one to have because there's so much desire to do it justice and to to do it well because we've done it poorly for so long. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading more of the of the comments, right? People have posted on your Facebook page and then comments since or after this podcast is released. I can't I can't wait. And Yeah. yeah, in case there's any doubt, people out there, we are awesome. 
We might not be perfect. <laughs> we are awesome. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> Have a really great day, Kim. You too. It's a pleasure. Ditto. Bye for okay. now. Bye. As a yoga teacher, I do my best to hold a safe space during class and to continue to build trust with my students. I feel that these two aspects will allow students to deepen their own yoga practice. When I'm holding space, I'm present to how each student is moving and feeling that day. And to further develop my students' trust, I always show up to my scheduled classes. I will use similar words and instructions in every class, and I present myself in the same state of mind consistently. I need to be grounded to achieve these two aspects. When I'm grounded through my own personal practices, I cannot be thrown off at my center and my mental health is in a state of balance. In this state, I can handle any situations that may materialize, personal or during a class. My students know they can relax and let go because my mental health is stable enough to put their needs before my own. Every year, I build a fire pit at my parents' cottage. I take good care to organize the pit itself and collect logs from around the beach to circle the pit and offer places for folks to sit. When I got to the cottage on one Saturday evening, I arrived to find this year's pit gone. For better or worse, I wondered, had folks taken the logs? Why would someone take the rocks from the pit? As if people do that. I huffed and puffed for a bit in the Southern Ontario humidity. I had invested a lot of time and heart into that fire pit space and paced up and down the beach, hot with frustration. With the sunset looming, I figured I may as well make another fire pit. So I did. As I worked, it became clear that it was in fact the water that had washed the pit away. There were no beach thieves lurking. Since the last time I was up, the water rose and created a new shoreline, erasing any sign of the pit that once stood. What do you do when not only your fire goes out, but the ground from which it rises is washed away? You sulk, blame, get angry, get frustrated, or you build another fucking fire pit. 
I took a collection of the burnt wood from that night's fire and placed them in a seal jar for my mom's hospital room. Her team of friends and family and doctors built her a new fire pit a couple years ago because the one she created had washed away. That new one has now washed away too. So, moving through anger, frustration, confusion, and the like, she has decided to build another fucking fire pit to find new ground from which her fire can rise. As yoga teachers, we help people build fires and rebuild fires and those pits that house them. It is equally important for us to find ways, albeit sometimes elusive ways, to rebuild our own fires too. Because suns rise and set, waves roll in and out, and fire pits can always be rebuilt. To burn fires and teach us all how to ignite those sparks of resilience that rest patiently ready to blaze. Curiosity in my personal life and a, a commitment to a level of congruency that, of, like I said, of course, not a perfect parallel, supports both my own well-being, but then in supporting my own well-being in turn is, I think, much more beneficial when I'm teaching. Having that separation and then also working towards a congruency while also being aware of allowing myself a space for my humanity. You know, as a yoga teacher, I think um, resiliency is something we're teaching all the time. Uh, if you fall come back into the pose slowly, take your time, you know, that's a cue that I'm giving in class often. Um, we're teaching a meditative practice when we teach yoga, right? I like to imagine that you're laying on your back and all of your clouds are floating by like um, thoughts. Sorry, all of your thoughts are floating by like clouds. Um, and, you know, you're not attaching yourself to to what that cloud looks like, you know, what color is it, what shape is it, but you're just observing as it goes by. Have a journey that is healthy for you through those so that you can see where you are, maybe see pitfalls. Sometimes we have some negative voices and stuff that we still hear from either childhood or past experiences um, and get a chance to turn those around so that then, you know, if for instance in the future sometime the voice that a yoga student is later hearing in their head might be yours um, when they practice on their own or when they've moved to another community or something and uh, we, we would love for those voices, the ones that are left echoing in our, in our students' minds to be always positive or, or helpful or in some way uh, yogic. Thank you for your contributions. Thank you for listening. And if there is someone that you think I should have on the podcast to talk about this or any other topic, send me an email at info at intelligentedge.yoga or send me a message on Facebook or Instagram. 
Until next time, namaste for now, yogis. Mm-hmm.